two years ago, I stood on the side of the stage at the Well Community Church in Fresno, California, listening and singing that song, tears streaming down my face as my sister laid in a hospital all alone, dying of COVID. And I remember in that moment singing those very words that we just sang, going, can I even sing this song? Can I even sing this song? God, why, my sister is young. Why, why is this happening? And I know, I know that in this place, there's pain. I know that some of you were feeling the exact same thing that I was feeling two years ago, singing that song today, going, God, if you're good, why are all of these things happening to me? Why is my family broken? Why is life hard? Why are things happening the way that they are? God took me on a journey and started with that very song, understanding how he could still be good when my life wasn't. And that's why this week is so important. Because if our truth defines us, then that means that God and his goodness is dependent upon the goodness of our circumstances. When life is good, God is good. When life is bad, God isn't good. And that's, that's just not what scripture teaches us. And so we're going to continue to walk through this journey about uh, focusing on what, what truth really is. Last night, we talked about the truth of God. And today, we're going we're gonna to ask the question, well, if God is true, what does that mean about his word? And how do we even know that that is his word? Because I could stand up here and I could just continue to preach from, from the Bible and I could continue to just assume that we all agree that the Bible is the word of God or this morning I can walk you through and show you why I believe that this book is the very word of our God. You know, before I was, uh, I was following Jesus, I, where are my freshmen at? We got freshmen here? All right, you guys are more proud of that than you should be, but it's good. It's good. Just kidding. Uh, when I was a freshman, I had a, a best friend, and he was Mormon. And his family was incredible. Mormons have the best families. Like they're just, they're, they're so generous and kind. And I would go over and I would hang out with them. And, and in a lot of ways, I admired them. My family was, was broken. My parents were divorced and my siblings and I, we didn't get along very well. And, and so I would go over to their house and it looked like they had everything all together. It, it looked like they, they didn't have any issues. Everything was perfect. They loved each other all the time. So there was something attractive about that. And one day I was over at their house and, and, uh, the, his dad gave me, um, a book of Mormon and he said, Hey, I, I think you could really benefit from this. And so I remember going home, taking that book of Mormon in one hand, the Bible in the other and asking the question, which one is true? Because they both can't be true. One is a, one is a lie. One is from the pit of hell and the other is truth. And so I looked at it and I, I, I go, okay, which one of these two is true? 
And I really wanted to know the answer because if one of them is the word of God, then that has profound impact on our life. If one of them is real, then, then we ought to read it and we ought to know it and we ought to live by it. If the God of the universe chose to write us a love story, then we should know what he wrote. So which was true? You know, there are a lot of scriptures, quote unquote scriptures, We've got the Quran, we've got the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price. All, all these major religions have, have what they propose to be the Word of God. So how do we know what's true? This morning I want to take you on that similar journey of asking that question, is the Bible true? So this morning we're going we're gonna to pick back up in John chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 1, starting in verse 19. And you're probably thinking, are we going through the whole book of John? We're still in chapter 1? Uh, yes, we'll get there. I promise. I promise. So as you open up to uh, John chapter 1, verse 19, and we're going to be introduced uh, to this guy named John the Baptist. John the Baptist, or, or maybe more literal, John the Baptizer. He was, he was the forerunner for Jesus. He was going around and he was baptizing people uh, and, and preparing the way for what Jesus would come and do. Uh, John the Baptist was an interesting character. He was the cousin of Jesus. And so what we know is that Mary and Elizabeth, the mother of Jesus and the mother of John the Baptist, they were related. Uh, we see the story of Mary going to Elizabeth, walking, walking into Elizabeth's home uh, while Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist and, and, and Mary is, is pregnant with Jesus. And, and just the very presence of Jesus in Mary's womb causes John the Baptist to, to leap or to, to tumble around in Elizabeth's womb. There's a special connection between John and Jesus. The book of Malachi foretells that, that there would be this, this forerunner who would come and pave the way for the Messiah. And now we look in John chapter 1 and this character, this, this man, John the Baptist, is the very one that the Old Testament foretold. As Jesus begins his ministry, John is, is in the wilderness. And when you think wilderness, like we're out here at Heartland, you look around, there are trees everywhere. It's easy for us to think wilderness, forest, but that's not what the wilderness was. The wilderness in Israel is desert. When you, talk, when you read through your Bible and you're looking at, at, at Jesus was in the wilderness or John was in the wilderness, they're literally sitting on rocks, no trees to be found, nothing around them. And so John's in the wilderness and he, he, he's down by the, the Jordan River and, and he, he's baptizing people. He's eating locusts and honey. Locusts are, are bugs. They're kind of like, like crickets. Uh, and and, and they, John's sitting there. He's eating locusts and honey. That's, that's what he's doing. He's living off the the land. I mean, this was not the guy. Like, typically, if, if you want to be around someone, it's somebody who, who has something you want or, or has achieved something you wish to achieve. John has nothing that's glamorous. He's living. I mean, he, he, John is the guy that you're like, whoa, that guy needs deodorant. Like he, he, is, he is not put together and yet he's preaching this message that's attractive. And so people are coming to him. They're wanting to be baptized by him. They're wanting to listen to this message of repentance, that the Messiah is coming, that the Messiah, the Messiah who, who can, can forgive sin, that he is coming. And so there was curiosity going on 
when it comes to John's identity. Everyone's asking, is he the Messiah? Is he the one to come? Who is he? So in John chapter 1, verse 19, our story picks up. It says, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent uh, to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So people are, people are walking around. They're wondering, who is this guy? Who is this John that brings this message? And in verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They were wondering, are you the Messiah? Are you, are you the, the one who was, was to come? And he says, I am not the Christ. Verse 21, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah, one of the old prophets? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As Isaiah, the prophet said, now they had uh, been sent from the Pharisees. And so what we see is John is directly claiming that he is the one that the Old Testament prophets wrote about, the one who would come and pave the way, make straight the way of the Lord. He's coming to say, someone's coming and you need to listen to him. You need to repent. You need to be baptized. And so we have to look back at this Old Testament expectation. The Old Testament if you take the New Testament away from the Old Testament, the Old Testament is one of the saddest stories ever to be told. The Old Testament, creation, fall, and then we've got this Old Testament sacrificial system that gets instituted where every year you'd have to go and make sacrifices for your sins. And, and there's this constant foretelling of the one who's to come that's going to offer something that, that no sacrifice outside of Jesus could offer. And as the Old Testament comes to a conclusion, there's such a, the, the, the expectations are growing and, and the excitement's growing and, and all of a sudden, God just goes dark for 400 years. The people of God hear nothing and they just sit around going, God, you promised. God, why didn't you come, come through? There's no resolution at the end of the Old Testament. God just leaves them waiting. God reveals himself. He shows humankind, Adam and Eve, and, he, and, and then Adam and Eve choose to do life apart from God. See, sin separates humanity from God. God is holy, which means set apart. It means, it means he, he, he cannot sin. It's not that he doesn't sin, that he is, he is perfect and he defines the, the regulations. He defines the standard. So he cannot sin. But humanity sins. Adam and Eve sins. That separates us from God. And, and then we see in Genesis that the, the innocent dies for the guilty. Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So, so Adam, and, Adam and Eve, they, they sin, and then all of a sudden in their sin, they're, they're reminded that there's guilt and shame associated with their nakedness. 
And so, and so they try to, to deal with it on their own. Have you ever tried to deal with, with sin on your own? Have you ever tried to just live a good life? So they try to, they try to deal with it on their own. And so they, they take fig leaves and they sew them together and they try and make this garment. But God, God looks at it and he says, that's not, that's not it. And so he kills animals, the innocent for the guilty. And he makes a garment to cover their sin, to cover their shame. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so even early in scripture, in, in the book of Genesis, we get this idea that, that something is going to happen. And then in Exodus, God reveals the Ten Commandments. No other gods before me, no idols, no murder, no adultery, no stealing, etc. 613 commands besides the, the ten, 613 commands make up the Jewish law. 613 things that, that the Jewish people had to live by in order to, to, to achieve perfection, in order to achieve meeting the standard of God, yet Humankind was never, ever meant to approach God on their own. Those 613 laws were not meant to be a checklist, a way for you to earn your salvation. It was merely meant to reveal your sin, to show that you can't live the life that God calls us to live. You cannot on your own. Romans 7, Paul writes this in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, you shall not covet. And so Paul reveals to all of us that, that, that without the law, we wouldn't even know what sin was. We would have no way to know the standard that God has set. And God gives us a requirement for sin the shedding of innocent blood. And so then in Leviticus, the, the offering system, the sacrificial system is instituted. And they have burnt offerings and grain offerings and peace offerings and sin offerings and guilt offerings. And the idea is that God institutes this sacrificial system just to kind of to, to show the people of God that there was a sacrifice required for the covering of sin. And we know that the Old Testament law was never meant to save. God always intended us to come to him through the sacrifice of the innocent. And we'll get to that more later in the week. And so the Old Testament finishes like a very poorly written novel. Have you ever watched like a movie? And you're like, How, why did that end that way? My wife and I, we just watched the, we watched the show for like 11 or 12 seasons and it came to an end. And I was like, that's the end. We, we invested 11 seasons and that's all we get at the end. Have you ever, have you ever experienced that? It's the same with a novel. You get to the end and you're like, why did I spend all this time reading all of these pages just to get to the end and see it end like that? And so that it, it finishes with no, no resolution, nothing at all. All they were doing for 400 years was they were left waiting for another. They were left waiting for the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ. It ends with a promise followed by silence. And then in Malachi, we start to see that 
that God promises more. So back to John 1. John the baptizer is on the scene. He's teaching. He's preaching. He's he's preaching fire and brimstone. Repent for the kingdom of of God is near. he's, He's preaching these truths and he's inviting his listeners to embrace the truth. And his listeners, they knew the scriptures. His listeners, they knew what to expect because they knew what God's word said. That's why they asked the question, if you're not Christ, then who are you? They were expecting the Christ. So they look at John and they they listen to him. And as we're listening to the beeping of that truck, which is awful, um, they're, they're listening to... To, to John and they realize man this might be the one that, that God's word tells us about John 1 verse 25 they ask him and said to him why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet and John answered them I baptize in water but among you stands one whom you do not know is he who comes after me the thong of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. So John's building this anticipation. There's this anticipation of uh, of Jesus, the Savior. And then he says something that seems crazy to us. The next day, verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, and we covered this last night, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Behold, the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a revolutionary statement. Remember, for, for for hundreds of years, this people group was was wrestling with the fact that that sin couldn't be taken away. It was just covered. And then year after year after year, they had to go offer sacrifices just to cover their sins. And then John looks at, John looks at Jesus and he, he, says, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't cover the sin. He takes it away. As far as the east is from the west, he takes away our sin. And then in verse 34, he says, and he testifies, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So how did John know that Jesus was the Son of God? Well, two, two ways. First of all, an angel came and told his mom. That would get your attention, right? The angel shows up, all of a sudden, uh, you're like, I should probably listen to this angel. Uh, and so angel comes and, and tells his mom when she's pregnant that Jesus was going to be the son of God. But also John knew his Bible. He knew what to expect. He knew what God said. He knew the promises and the character of God because it was found in the, in the pages of the Bible. See, John and the Jewish audience at the time of Jesus, they believed that the Bible was true. They devoted their lives to the Bible. They knew that the Bible was where truth was found. So much so that they were actively looking for the fulfillment of scriptures. Are you the Christ? They they weren't questioning whether God's word was actually God's word. They were just looking for the fulfillment of the Bible. 
They wanted to, to see what God had promised come true. And they, they believed the Bible because the Bible was a very unique assortment of writings. It's not an ordinary book. See, an ordinary book is written by one author. And that one author can provide continuity through the whole thing. But our Bible, our Bible is unique, incredibly unique. So we have to ask the question, as you hold the Bible in your hands, how do we know that the Bible is accurate? Well, in your hands, you hold a book that's made up of 66 other books. And that book was written over a 1,500-year period. 1,500 years from beginning to end. It has 40 different authors. It's written in three different languages. It's written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And yet, despite all of that, 66 books written over a 1,500-year period by 40 different authors in three different languages, the beauty is it fits together seamlessly. No book should fit together the way that your Bible fits together. It fits together seamlessly and it fits together without contradiction. Think about that. It's hard to get two people to agree on something. But the Bible has 40 different authors that never contradict the other. Never once. And with all these translations, right? We look at all these translations. How do we know that the Bible's accurate? Well, there's only two ancient texts that stand up to the same criticism. The first is the, uh, the Iliad, Homer's Iliad. It was written in, in the 8th century BC. How many of you guys have heard of the Iliad? Yeah? Okay. So the Iliad has um, 300 copies. The more copies, the more accurate. So if we have 300 copies over a 5,000 year period, then we can tell that the 300th copy is similar to the first copy. Does that make sense to you? The more copies, the more we have to compare. And so the Iliad has 300 copies that we've located and found. And between those 300 copies, the Iliad is 95% accurate. So 5% doesn't match up. Does that make sense? You guys tracking? Okay. The Bible is the other. The Iliad has 300 copies. How many do you think the Bible has? How many? 5,000? Somebody? The Bible has 30,000 copies. So the next closest book has 300. The Bible has 30,000. So we have 30,000 copies to, to track along, along history to make sure that there hasn't been deviations along the way. You guys tracking? Okay. The, the Iliad was 95% accurate. What do you think the Bible is? Well, that, all, 1 million? 1 million percent. All right. What? 99. Okay. Very close, 98.5% accurate. So 300 copies for the Iliad, 95% accurate. Pretty good. 30,000 copies of the Bible, 98.5% accurate, which means over 30,000 copies, 
there's only 1.5% deviation, over 30,000 copies. Here's the important thing. The Bible is the greatest degree of accuracy of any text ever in the history of the world, ever. And you ask, well, what about that 1.5%? That's gotta be important. I mean, it's not 100% accurate. The 1.5% is grammar. It's commas and periods and, and ways things are worded. It's not, there's zero doctrine included in that 1.5%, which means God over time has preserved all of the doctrine that he wants for you and for me to know. The Bible can be trusted. So what else makes the Bible unique? Well, the Bible claims co-authorship. God used human authors, but he also used the Holy Spirit to co-author scripture. In 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, Peter writes, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So, we have this Bible and, and humans write it, but God is inspiring it, which means if God is inspiring it, then, then it is the very word of God. It's not the word of human authors. It's the word of God. The Holy Spirit determined what is in it. So as we go forward, uh, maybe a, a brief timeline of the New Testament. First century, Jesus is the history of Jesus is being worked out. And then the gospels are written and almost immediately they're accepted. Think about that. The people who experienced Jesus were still alive, walking on the earth. And then as they're still alive, the gospels, which tell the story of Jesus's life, birth, life and death and resurrection, they come out and immediately they're accepted as truth. People who knew whether they were true, people who knew whether they were alive, they accepted them immediately. Then the, the Pauline epistles, the letters that Paul writes, they were widely accepted as well during the same period. And so what we see is history is telling us that the Bible is true and that the Bible is inspired. And if the Bible is true and the Bible is inspired and the Bible is accurate, then it means this. And, and this is what I want you to walk away with this morning. Ready? If the Bible is true and the Bible is inspired and the Bible is accurate, then the Bible is authoritative. The Bible is the authority of our lives. If all of that is true, and I just laid out how it is, then the Bible is the very authority of our lives. Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have access. Paul, or, uh, uh, Joshua writes this and he says, this is the authority, do what it says. Jesus says it this way in John 14. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So all throughout history, we see a high view of the word of God, that it is true, that it is inspired, that it is accurate, and that it is the authority in our lives. But why? 
Isaiah 40, verse 8, says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Everything else fades. Think about this. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus walked on this earth. 2,000 years. And the word of God still stands. Romans 10, 17 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It is the word of God that brings faith. So therefore, it's true and it's powerful. Hebrews 4.12. Hopefully you're taking notes because there's a lot of, of cross-references. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word is what works in our lives. There's never going to be a time you read it and you're like, ah, I've, I've arrived. It's constantly working. It magnifies things that are in our, in our hearts and in our minds as you read through, as, you, as you, you read through God's word and he points out things in your life that need to be changed, that need to, 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 to grow because he's the authority. It's interesting, as Christians, we ask what our purpose is. I saw somebody wrote that on the card last night. Question, what is my purpose? Jesus, before he leaves this earth, he gives us our purpose. It's called the Great Commission. It says this, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And listen, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. What, where, where do we find that? The all that I've commanded you. It's in the word of God. The, the goal is that we would be people of the book, that we would allow the, the, the Bible to be the authority of our lives. And then in John 1, 35 through 51, people start following Jesus. They hear the message of John the Baptist. They were expecting him because of the word of God. And they start following Jesus. First in verse 39, we see Andrew, Peter's brother. He says, come and you will see. In verse 41, we see Peter. In verse 43, he says, follow me to a guy named Philip, and Philip follows him. In verse 45, we see Nathaniel. And that's what the truth of Scripture does. The truth of Scripture calls us to follow Jesus. They're going to point to the truth of the person and the work of Jesus. They're going to invite you to follow him. I want you to remember what John 5 says. Jesus says this. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. The scriptures are all about Jesus. Every page in your Bible is about Jesus. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in so many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. God has revealed uh, himself to us in creation. We talked about that last night. He's revealed himself to us in his word. We talked about that this morning and tonight. Tonight, we're going to talk about how God has revealed himself through his son. 
And as we head out of here, as we get ready for the rest of our day, as you, as you guys go to wreck, I want you to, to dwell on what you heard here. Because if the Bible is inspired, and if the Bible is true, and if the Bible is accurate, then what do you what do you do with it? Where do you place it in your life? Because as we ask what truth is, we've talked about how the problem with society is that we walk around saying we are the standard of truth. We determine what truth is. What I want to be truth is true. But if everything I've said this morning is true, then, then the authority in our lives, the place you have to go and ask what is right and what is honorable and what is pure is the word of God and the word of God alone. My hope is that you'll dwell on that today as you continue to walk this journey out this week. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful. Even though it's a lot of information this morning, Lord, I'm grateful that you didn't just leave us to figure it out on our own. Lord, so many people in this world, they think that, that Christianity is just something people believe on a whim. That Christianity is something that people just happen to follow without any evidence. But Lord, you have given us so much evidence to the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that anybody who is here who is struggling with whether the Bible is true can, can look and see that you have given us your word that it is true and that it is inspired and that it is accurate so that it is the authority in our lives. Lord, help all of us to walk through our day and ask the question, what does your word say? Let that be our guidance in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.